Welcome to the Focus Church Teachings Podcast. We hope this brings a lot of encouragement to you, but we also want you to know that we believe discipleship doesn't occur here, but occurs in small groups where people share their gifts with each other in many-to-many discipleship. If you want to know more about that, stick around after the teaching. So we are on Hebrews uh, 4, chapters 3, uh, verses rather, 3 through 14. And so really just to remind you where we are, kind of review, he even begins here in chapter, in, in verse 3, he's continuing what he was saying last week. And we read up through verse 2, um, where he was really just saying that those who didn't believe the message, the good word, the good promise of the promised land and the gospel, that they have no value for those who don't believe. Because there are certain truths that only make a difference to you if you believe them. And that's what we talked about last week. It doesn't mean they aren't true, but they only make a difference to you if you believe them. There's this beautiful personal aspect to Christianity. It is both objective in that there's real historical facts of Jesus' death and resurrection and God being a real thing, a real person. But there's also the subjectivity that whether we believe these things makes the difference in our lives. And um, I think it's pretty cool that, that, it, that it, it, it works on both levels because it is that deep. So, but here we are in Hebrews, in verse 3, he says this, Now he, we who have believed, enter that rest, just as God has said. So I declared in my oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. Now that, that's interesting, two things, right? He says, we who believed have entered that rest, just as God has said, I declared in my oath and in anger, they shall never enter that rest. What he's doing is referring to what we talked about last week, that the Israelites were standing at the, at the edge of the, the border of the promised land. And some of them believed and entered that rest, right? They believed that God was, was honest and intelligent and smart and powerful. And then when he said the land was theirs, that he meant it. And they believed him and they entered the land. They entered the rest of the promised land. But at the same time, those who didn't believe did not enter. So the point is just this. He's just reinforcing this idea of believe and rest. What disobedience refers to is not believing God in this case. That's what he's talking about. And so, but then he goes on, and he's going to actually talk about this idea in this, the rest of this chapter. He's going to talk about this idea, this connection between faith and rest, this idea of believing and resting. And he's going to talk about different ways in which that has happened throughout the Israelite history. That connection between believe and rest, or don't believe and don't rest. And he's going to kind of go through these various examples. And they're so beautiful. I, I love the, the clarity these examples give. And then that brings us right up to the gospel itself. And the question becomes, do we believe Jesus is the Messiah? And do we enter that rest? And if we do, we do. And so, and if we don't, we don't. And again, that disobedience, that idea, all comes down to faith. It all comes down to believing God. But as the pictures are given, I think it clarifies even what that means. So that's what we're going to do as we go through this. So the, the next thing he says is, he says this, And yet his works have been finished since the creation of the world. For somewhere he has spoken about the seventh day in these words, On the seventh day God rested from all his works. So here's what he's saying. He's pointing out that this idea that we have of the Sabbath, right, the Sabbath rest, it isn't really just intended to be once every seven days. What that passage in Genesis is talking about is that God finished the creation in six days. And on the seventh day, he was done. That's what it means. His work was completed, so he rested. There was no more work to do. It doesn't just mean he took a break and then went back to creating the world more the next day. It means he was done. That was the idea. It was supposed to be, in a sense, sort of a permanent rest, a permanent completion. 
He did his work, and then he was done. And what was his work? His work was creating the universe. His work was creating this perfect paradise where everything was completed, everything was done. And yet, the author goes on to say, again, in the passage above, he says, they shall never enter my rest. So here's the, the tension, here's the conflict that the author of Hebrews is pointing out. This idea of rest goes back to the very beginning of the Bible. And it starts with this idea that God completed his work. And when he completed his work, he stopped. He rested. He was done. And yet, somehow, we haven't entered that rest of his completed work. So the question becomes, that he's kind of posing is, God's rest was temporary. That Sabbath ended up being temporary. It starts over every seven days. You work for six days, then you rest for one. So instead of being this permanent rest of the work being done and completed, somehow it was this temporary thing. And the question is, why? Why did it become temporary? Well, here's why. It's for the same reason that he's been talking about all along. It's because of a lack of belief. So go back, let's consider this a second. So Adam and Eve were created into this perfect world, right? Into this rest. God completed his work and he looked at everybody and he looked at the whole world and he looked at Adam and Eve and once he created man and woman together, then he says, it is very, very good, right? It's good up until it's done, but now it's done. It's very good. And then it says, and he rested from his work. So here, Adam and Eve, they're in this perfect world, this paradise, this beautiful world that is a place of rest. It is refreshing. It's life-affirming. Life happens easily, right? Entropy is like in reverse. Instead of things decaying, things produce life. It's just like impossible not to produce life almost, right? It's just that kind of world where the most restful thing is productivity. <laughs> the most restful thing is life. And we get to rest. And there's refreshment. And there's no striving. There's no stress. Think of all the things, right, that prevent you from resting today. The things you have to get done in order to survive. So survival keeps us from resting. Or fears and anxieties, those keep us from resting. Uh, worries about things, those keep us from resting. Obstacles, weeds and, and thorns and pain, these keep us from resting. None of those things existed. None of those things were there. It was a perfect paradise and it was restful. But restful doesn't mean static, right? It, like I say, it was life-producing. It was life-enriching, and it was life-producing. But what happened is that Adam and Eve, in the middle of this paradise, they decided they knew better than God. Instead of trusting God when he said, my work is done, they thought they could improve on the work. And they were led by the deceiver. So there's the, the deceiver, the serpent. That's a whole, a whole thing we can talk about, of course. But there is the devil, and he leads us by deception. And so what he does is he basically says to them, God doesn't really want what's best for you. He's hiding things from you. There's better for you. His work for you is not done. I know it looks like he's given you everything, but there's this thing he hasn't given you. And God told them, there is this one fruit I don't want you to eat. But it's not about the fruit. It's about Adam and Eve's response to the fruit. See, what happens is they look around and it says, it tells us that when they looked at the fruit of the tree, whatever fruit it was, it doesn't say an apple. I personally go for a fig. We can talk about that. That is later. But So they look at this fig tree and they say, and they look at the fig, and, and they say the fig looks better, or the fruit, they say it looks pleasing to eat, it looks tasty, they say it looks pleasing to the eye, it looks beautiful, and they say it will make us more like God. And this is the, the deception, is that God says to them, I've given you everything, the work is completed, you can just rest in beautiful enjoyment, there's nothing that's missing for your enjoyment, because the work is complete. But they convince themselves that God is lying to them. That God isn't telling them the truth, so they don't believe him. And they look at the fruit and they think, this will give us more life. This will give us more rest. 
this will give us more of what we need. And so they eat of the fruit, and because they do that, as soon as they do, they walk away from God, they don't trust him, and the world no longer is a place of rest. The whole world becomes cursed with striving. See, God gave them as much food as they could ever want. He made everything beautiful to their eyes and even gave them the eyes and the soul to enjoy all the beauty. And he made them in his image. And yet they decided that something else would give them better food, better vision, and make them more like God. And all it did instead was it made them more striving. Everything is cursed with it. Suddenly, plants don't just grow, there's weeds that get in the way. And now by the toil of your brow, you will grow things. It takes effort now to produce life. Producing children now is done with pain. Can you imagine what it would have been like if pain was not part of childbirth? If that had never been associated with it? If the word labor was actually a misnomer because there was no labor involved in labor? But there is labor involved in labor. And there is toil and stress involved in work. Can you imagine if there wasn't? Think of how much of our lives are dominated by jobs that are toil, full of toil and stress and the raising and producing of life and then the raising of children, which is, which is a labor. And so everything became less restful. And why did it happen? Why was God's rest temporary? Because we chose not to believe. See, Adam and Eve could have perpetuated this restful paradise by simply believing God. But instead, they didn't believe God, and so it led to strife and struggle and toil. And this is what the author of Hebrews is saying, is that this is the way it has always been from the very beginning. Even the very first idea of Sabbath rest was the idea that God's work was completed. But when we refused to, refused to believe that God's work was completed, when we believed that we could add to his work in some productive way, that's when it became toil and stress, and we lost that idea of rest. So he goes on and he says this, therefore, since it still remains for some to enter the rest, because again, it was temporary, right? The rest didn't last forever, so now we're not in that rest, even though that's what was supposed to happen. He says, still, since, he says, since it still remains for some to enter that rest, and since some who formerly had the good news proclaimed to them did not go in because of their disobedience, God set a certain day, calling it today. All right, before we go further, let's clarify what's happening here. He's bringing the two together. He's saying it still remains for some to enter that rest. That God's temporary rest, the world was made perfect. Now that's not true. We're not in that rest anymore. We once a week, we have this Sabbath rest to kind of remind us, to give us a picture of what we've lost and what we should have, but it doesn't really exist anymore. God's completed world is now imperfect. So we still have to enter that rest, right? But then he draws it into the promised land picture, which he gave us last week, the promised land picture, which he gave us last week. That those who formerly heard the good news, here it is, here's the land, here's the land of milk and honey, here's the rest that I've given you, they didn't go on because of their disobedience. Disobedience here meaning what? Meaning they didn't believe. They didn't believe it was completed. They got to the promised land and they said that the promised land is occupied, God gave us a half-finished land, right? So we're going to go away and let them finish it, or we're going to finish it ourselves. And they began to strive. So, but he says, because of that, God said a certain day calling it today. This he did when a long time later he spoke through David. As in the passage already quoted, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. So it's, we saw this quote last week. You may not remember, but there was this quote where it says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. And he's quoting David. And the point may be a little bit obscure here, but what he's saying is, how on earth is it? Actually, it gets more clear in the next verse. So let's go on. I'll, I'll show you. What he's essentially saying is, just like God's rest was temporary, so the promised land proved temporary. Listen to what he says. As in the passage already quoted, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken later about another day. 
The point being this. We get to the promised land, we have another picture of God providing rest and people not believing him. But even for those who did believe and entered, and then they, they, they get to kind of the, the height of national rest, so to speak, the glory days of David's kingship. And at that time, David is still talking about people needing to enter the rest of God, needing to trust God, needing to not harden their hearts. And the author of Hebrews is saying, why would David have to say that if the promised land was actually the fulfillment of the rest through Joshua? So he's making two points. He's showing out throughout history how we continue to not trust God for rest. Just as in the garden, Adam and Eve lost the garden, so now God makes this promise of a new garden, right? A land filled with milk and honey. This promise of incredible, fruitful uh, beauty and enjoyment and rest for the Israelites, a rest from wandering. All of the promises that were in paradise, he promises them essentially in the promised land. A new world, a new land, a new paradise flowing with milk and honey. But the other points out that Joshua led them to that land, so why is David still talking about it? And the answer is, it's the same answer, right? See, one of the answers is that they, they, they turn from the promised land by not trusting God had completed it. First, they turn actually turn from it altogether. As we talked about last week, they don't even enter, right? Because they don't believe that God has completed it. They're afraid of what they see there. But then even when they do enter, they look around and they decide that other countries have better food and more beautiful things and are more like God. Right? And they turn to God and they say, we don't believe this land of milk and honey you've given us is fruitful in us. We don't believe the covenant you've given where your people is enough that we're like you. Just like Adam and Eve, they decide that what they see around them is better for being like God, for, for filling their souls and filling their flesh than the things that God gives them himself. And we see this throughout their time in the promised land. It starts with a desire for a king. They look around at the other nations and they say, they all have kings. That's a really good thing. We want a king. God says, I'm your king, right? I am your king. You don't need other things to fill that void. But they don't believe him, and so he says, okay, and he lets them have a king. But that's not it. Throughout, they continually are seeking the gods of other countries. They're seeking the fruits of other countries. They're seeking to be more like the other nations around them. And God continually calls them back to be his people, to be different, to trust in him, and to rest. They could have had a restful time in the promised land, but instead it's constantly striving and scrambling and struggling because they don't trust that God has completed the work. They're constantly trying to add to what God has given them. They're constantly trying to make things better than God promised them he could make them. And instead of resting in what God has given them, they don't trust God and they're constantly striving and struggling when it's not even necessary. Seeking their own way and increasing the striving where the striving wasn't even a requirement. So it becomes clear to the author of Hebrews that here again, the promised land is not the true rest, partly because people turn aside from it with a lack of faith, but also because it was never intended to be the true rest. Like the Sabbath itself, it's just a picture of what could have been and what should be. But it isn't the fulfillment of that in and of itself. And so the author continues and says this, there remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. So if it, if it didn't happen in the original creation because we turned from God, and it didn't happen in the promised land as we turned from God, then there still remains a Sabbath rest. The, the rest that we think of, of the work being completed, not just a once-a-day rest, but the work being completed still remains. This idea of God's completion of his plans, and this idea that we can rest in that, that we can trust him, it still remains. He says, there remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from their works, just as God did from his. The point is this, just like Adam and Eve, 
They're like, he's like, you don't have to make things better. You don't have to grow a fruit which will make you happy. I've made you happy. I've given you everything you need. And the truth is, when we don't believe that God has completed the work, then we just add our own. We have to struggle. We have to strive. We have to make things happen to produce our own life, to bring ourselves our own rest. And it becomes this treadmill. It becomes this, this hamster wheel that there's no getting off of because there's no rest in that. We're always trying to complete the work of God when he's telling us he's completed it. And if we would trust him, it would lead to rest because we would cease from our work because we would trust he's completed it. It says, anyone who enters God's rest also rests from their works just as God did from his. Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will perish by following their example of disobedience. Let us enter their rest. He says to the Hebrews there, let us rest from our own works and let us accept that God's work has completed it. Remember we talked about at the very beginning that the struggle for the Hebrews, the people he's writing to, are that they, they, they saw the Messiah in conflict with the Old Testament. And they thought they were betraying the Old Testament if they didn't hold on to all of the, 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 the pictures and maps and foreshadowings and laws that they were given if they didn't hold on to that while they held on to Jesus. And the author of Hebrews is saying this, no, what you're doing is you're not accepting that what Jesus done has completed the work. You're trying to add to it by all these things. But this was just showing us, leading us to the Jesus who completed the work. It's really not an accident that Jesus says at the cross, in his final, final moments, one of his last words is, he says, it is finished. What's he referring to? His own life? No. No. He's referring to the plan that's been in place from the beginning. The true Sabbath rest. The work of God has been completed. Much like God saying, the universe is finished, I created it, it's perfect. But in a more permanent way even, Jesus is saying, the work is finished. I have completed the redemption. I have brought the Sabbath rest. To people. No more struggling, no more striving, no more anxiety, no more trying to add to God's work. I have finished it. And this is what the author of Hebrews is trying to say. But faith is such an internal thing, right? When, when he's trying to say to them, we need to trust God and not disobey, it can become the kind of thing where you think, okay, we need to not eat of a particular fruit. We need to not turn away from a particular land. What is the thing that it is that we need to do? Is it that we stop or start doing these, these ceremonies of the, of the law? No, it's, it's none of that. It's really not what you do. <laughs> it's your faith. Faith is so internal, it's so hard for us to see it in one another, right? James points out that you can see what people believe by what they do, but it's not a one-to-one -one correlation. Not all acts that are done come from the same place of faith. In, for example, you can take two people who go to the same church on a regular basis, and they give to the same charities, right? And they vote for the same candidates. And yet they might do all that for vastly different reasons. One of them might do it because in his faith, he's really doing what God is leading him to do. And the other might be doing it because he wants to look good, or because he thinks that's what you do, or because the first guy's doing it and he seems to get a lot of applause. We don't know the motivations of why people do what they do. We're terrible judges of people's motivations. We're terrible judges of the hearts of people. We think we're good judges of people's hearts, right? But we're bad at it, we're terrible. The truth is, we give the benefit of the doubt to people we already love, and we don't give the benefit of the doubt to people we don't love. And it's that simple. It's very difficult. We are not good at reading the hearts of people. We, we give people credit for evil that doesn't exist, and at the same time, we also give them credit for nobility that they don't deserve. We're not good at judging the hearts of people. But God 
is. And that's why the author of Hebrews seems to turn a corner here. He's talking about faith and he's talking about obedience and all of a sudden he says this thing which seems disconnected but it's not. He's reminding us that this faith is an internal thing and the only perfect judge of it is God. God is the only accurate judge. And this is what he says. He says for, right? When he says let us not be disobedient, then he's going to remind us it's internal. It's about faith. For the word of God is alive as he sees it turn to him, to believe him, to rely on him, to be dependent upon him. The word of God is active. It reveals to us our constant striving as we trust in ourselves more than in God. It's constantly uncovering and laying us bare to God. And the only one that can truly judge us accurately is God. People around us is just unnecessary. They can't see you correctly anyway. <laughs> you're right, you can fool them, but you're not accountable to them. How's that for a thought? You're not accountable to them. You're accountable to God. And he sees you, and he doesn't, isn't fooled by where you're at. Judge. But here's the thing to realize. When God says, you know, distant, unknowing, controlling deity who just wants to tell us what he thinks is best for us generally because it's best for people generally, no. This is coming from an intimate father who knows you truly better than you know yourself. And when he says he knows what's best for you, he just happens to be 100% correct. Later on, the author of Hebrews is going to tell us that we as fathers discipline the best we can. Right? But it tells us that God disciplines for our best. He actually knows what's best. And he actually calls us to that. When he said to Adam and Eve, this fruit is bad for you and the rest of it's good, he was actually right. When he said to the Israelites, this promised land is where you'll find your rest, he was actually right. When he said to them, you don't need a king, he was actually right. Because he knows you intimately, personally, deeply, better than you know yourself. That means his judgments are perceptive and right, and he's the one to whom we are accountable now and always. He's the one who sees the evil and the wickedness in you, and you think, wow, great encouraging message there. It would still be true, but it would be missing a really important place. Because he makes this point after making that point. After pointing out that God is the only accurate judge, the one who looks into the marrow of your bones and the depths of your soul and your heart and actually knows you, he then says this, he says, therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. See, God is not only the perfect judge, he's also the perfect high priest. And this is so important to understand. See, in the Old Testament, there were certain roles that God said should never be conflated. He said the king and the priest should never be the same. And if you think about all the trouble that our world has when kings and priests of any religion are the same, you'll understand that God had some wisdom in that. And he says to the Israelites, the king and the priest should be separate roles, they should have distinct roles, they should never merge together. Because no human being can be both. They also said the same thing of judges and priests. Priests had a certain judging uh, capacity, but when it came to certain specific judges, judges and priests would have different roles. They were not to be together. Because again, it's a conflation of power that God prevented them from. Kings and judges and priests were never to be together in the same role. But... Jesus is the king, the judge, and the priest. <laughs> because only God can handle being all. And when it comes to these two, the judge and the priest, it's a beautiful picture. Because it means the person who sees deep into the marrow of your bones is also the person who knows exactly how to atone for you. Think about once a year of going into the Holy of Holies, going into the most holy place to where God actually sits, and making atonement for everyone else. And the high priest does that very generically, right? He simply makes atonement for the whole nation. 
But imagine if that high priest knew you well enough, was perfect enough to look at exactly what sins he had to make atonement for, and then could make exactly atonement for those sins. It doesn't work quite like this, but I think for our minds to grasp it, it's not bad to think of it this way, as if there's just a certain payment for each sin, a certain amount, and God, as a perfect high priest, is able to make exactly the amount of atonement that's needed, neither more nor less. He's able to come in exactly because he knows you exactly, and he never misses it, and it's never not enough. He's not only the perfect judge, but because he's the perfect judge, it makes him also the perfect high priest. Because he sees your sin with such great clarity, it means he can atone for your sin with such great accuracy. Right? And this is the point that he's making. And, and this is part of what the author of Hebrews and the other scriptures tell us, is that where the, the, the high priest in the Old Testament made atonement for us, Jesus' atonement is so perfect and accurate, it actually cleans us. See, in the Old Testament, no one was actually cleansed by the sacrifice of animals. It even says that in the Old Testament. But in the New Testament, understanding what Jesus did, he actually is the fulfillment of that, and he actually cleans us. He actually makes us righteous. Now, I understand our actions do not always follow that righteousness. It does not make everything we do correct or everything we do righteous. But the greater we understand, the more confidence we have in what Jesus has done, that because he is the high priest, the more we hold on to firmly to the faith that he has atoned for us, that he has made us clean, the more we hold to that, more likely we are, our actions to live up to that righteousness rather than less likely. The point is, it all comes down to this. The one who, loves, the one who knows you to the marrow of your bones, to the depth of your soul, also loves you to the depth of your soul. The one who knows you to the marrow of your bones loves you to the depth of your soul. Right? Isn't that great? The person who can judge you, the person who has the ability to judge you, instead loves you to the depths of your soul. He goes on, he says, We do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weakness, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet did not sin. He's still the perfect God, he's still the perfect high priest, and he's the perfect judge, but he's been made more perfect for us, as the author of Hebrews says earlier, by becoming human and understanding viscerally, empathetically, how hard it is to be human. That the, the burden of infallibility is too much for us. The burden we place on ourselves, the striving, the struggling, and the work that we do, it wears us down year after year after year. It wears us out and it wearies us because we can never do it. We can never make ourselves clean. And Jesus felt the temptations and the struggles, yet he did not sin. Because of that, he maintains his status as the perfect high priest, able to enter the Holy of Holies, ascending into heaven, and actually becoming the perfect atonement for us. There is something beautiful. We can see this in our human interactions. I'm sure that you've seen it too. In the course of my life, I've had opportunities at times to really need financial help. We have been at sometimes at poverty level for various reasons, and sometimes it was bad decisions I made, and sometimes it wasn't bad decisions I made. But I've noticed something, that there are people that I can go to for help who are sympathetic and helpful, and I don't scorn their help. They are generous and they give me what I need, but they always do it with strings attached. They do it with a reproach. There's a verse in the scripture that says that God is generous, and he gives generously without reproach. And I've known people in my life who give generously with reproach. <laughs> they are judgments. That, that as, they, as they give, there's always this, this good amount of humility and, and mortification that they require from me. And I'm not even saying that's all always sort of, uh, God works through that sometimes. But I've also noticed in my life that there are people who give generously without reproach. 
These are people who do not require a certain level of mortification from me, even though I may feel it. These are people who don't require a certain level of remorse from me, even though I may feel it. These are people who don't make judgments about whether I deserve or belong to be here, but simply give. And they give me a picture of the grace of God, which is closer to the reality, I think. That this is a God who understands our weakness. He can empathize with it. I know that my own financial struggles have made me more kind and more gentle to people who struggle financially. Because I know, because I've been there, because I see it. And this is the same for Jesus, that he has experienced being human, and it makes him even more of a perfect high priest in his ability to be empathetic to us. And then the author closes with this. Let us then, everything he said, all of this picture, right, about faith leading to rest, and rest being that God's work is completed, and we need to trust in his work being completed, and also understanding that we have a perfect judge. He sees everything. He's not fooled about anything, and yet he's also the perfect high priest, and that he atones exactly for the sins that he sees, and, and in abundance. And he says this, Let us then approach the throne of grace, God's throne of grace, with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Confidence in God's grace is faith. Confidence in God's grace is the faith that the work is completed. See, if Adam and Eve had confidence in God's grace, they would have trusted that everything he'd given was everything they needed. If the Israelites had confidence in God's grace, they wouldn't have been afraid to enter the promised land. If the Israelites had confidence in God's grace, they wouldn't have required a king. They would have known that God's grace was enough. And for us, confidence in God's grace means the Messiah, the gospel, the recognition that the work at the cross was enough, that it completed the work. We are very much like the early, early first century Hebrews who were looking to introduce the law to grow in, in, in bringing things to add to the work of Christ. We do it all the time. We don't, just, we don't believe that Christ on the cross is enough. We think we need to add our own remorse. We think we need to add our own mortification. We think we need to add our own sorrow, our own works, our own philosophical and theological ideas, but what the author of Hebrews calls us to is quite simply confidence in God's grace. That's faith, and that's what leads to rest. No more striving to complete the work that's been done by Jesus. No more working to make yourself approved of by God who's already approved of you through the blood of Jesus. No more working to make yourself enough. No more striving to be enough when the Lord has already made it so. He sees into the marrow of our bones, but his throne is not a throne of judgment. Not for us. Through the cross, through the gospel, his throne is a throne of grace. Jesus himself said, I came not to condemn the world, but to save it. For God so loved the world. Paul says that as we've accepted by faith, as we've had confidence in God's grace at the cross, that there is no condemnation for us. There is no wrath. And there is no judgment. He says that we are now going to have confidence in God's grace. I want you to notice, though, the other thing it says about this. And find grace to help us in our time of need. Sometimes we think that we can approach the throne of God with confidence because of our lack of need. Because we finally hit a place where we feel righteous. And we feel comparatively superior to the people around us. That is, friends, the worst time. I mean, no time is bad to approach the throne of grace, but... That's not what it calls for here, and it's really hard to throw yourself on the mercy and grace of God if that's really your attitude. What this says is our confidence is not in our self-righteousness or our comparative superiority to others, which is always an illusion anyway. 
But this says that our confidence is in the throne of grace in our time of need. Don't wait till you're no longer in a time of need. Are you uncertain? Are you filled with doubt? Are you racked with guilt? Are you anxious about tomorrow? Are you struggling with your own ability to do the right things? This is precisely the time to go to the throne of grace with confidence, not in yourself, but in the God of rest who wants to bring you rest. This is the moment. Come as you are, as the famous hymn says. Come as you are, wanting and needy and desperate. This is your need. That's when you come to the throne of grace with confidence to find mercy and grace in time of need. You never have to worry about coming to the throne of grace with anything less than confidence because the confidence is in God's grace and in God's mercy and that he wants to be there to help you in your time of need. And you see how that could bring you rest? Rest from the striving, from the struggle, from the need to make yourself enough, from the need to, to fill in what God hasn't completed? Have confidence in God's grace that the work is completed and come to him in that faith. And then you will find that rest. Rest from your anxieties, from your constant striving to figure it out, to know enough, to be enough, to do enough. Come in your need. Come as you are. Come, says Jesus, to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Beautiful passage in Hebrews. Beautiful reminder that confidence in God's grace equals rest. Are you needing some rest? Throw yourself at the mercy of God. Approach the throne of grace with confidence in who he is and not in who you are, other than that you are in need. And he is the master and the father who loves you so much he sees to the marrow of bones and he knows what your need is at its deepest. And he's your perfect high priest who wants to meet that need with his own sacrifice. Thank you for uh, hanging out with us today. I hope it's been an encouragement to you here in the book of Hebrews. We'll keep going. It's amazing how the depth that we get to as we really begin to see him pull these pieces together, isn't it? Now we begin to understand some of the things he's talked about, God being human and God being God, Jesus being human and Jesus being God, and, and faith and rest. It's all starting to come together, isn't it? And it continues to do so. It builds as it goes. It gets more deep. It gets more thorough. So I hope you'll be with us next week as we continue to explore Hebrews and move on to chapter 5 next week. Most churches believe in the value of small groups at a focused church. We are so convinced that's where the discipleship happens that we put all of our resources, our training, and our assessment into the focus groups. And we believe that you can be part of a focus group from anywhere in the country. So if you'd like to join us, just email me at pastormac, M-A-C, underscore at mac.com. And I'd love to tell you how you can be part of it. Either way, I hope this has been encouragement to you, and we'll see you here again next week.